We're turning to 1 Thessalonians and the chapter 1, and we're looking at the verse 8 tonight. 1 Thessalonians and the chapter 1 and the verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. And we're taking that phrase at the beginning of verse 8 in particular tonight, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord. And though I personally didn't design it to be this way, but then the Lord's in charge of all things, is He not? It does tie in with where we were this morning, an extension of that church in its ministry of love round about, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, and that is the highest expression of love that we can bring to any neighborhood to bring to them the Word of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father, again, we come into Thy presence. We thank Thee, Lord, for Thy presence already in the meeting. We praise Thee for those that have been gathered in, and we thank Thee at this stage in our meeting tonight. We thank Thee on reflection as we look back over the past week for Thy hand upon the work, even here. Lord, we do praise Thee for the numbers of the children that were gathered in and young people each night from Monday through to Wednesday. We thank Thee, Lord, for the parents that came in as well, and we rejoice that they came in in answer to the particular prayers of Thine own believing people. And Lord, we know that in our land today, in all of its sin and all of its shame, we know that in all of its heartbreak and all of its trouble, that as the old hymn puts it, so it's right, people need the Lord. Every day they pass me by. That's what the hymn writer said. Uh, empty people filled with care, headed who knows where, people need the Lord. And Lord, we recognize that before our salvation, we had no thought of that, no feeling of need. But we thank Thee that when the Spirit of God took hold upon us, and when He began to speak to us, then our whole perspective was changed, and we began to think differently. And we had more serious thoughts coming to mind that maybe we would have brushed away or not even entertained in days before. But Lord, we thank Thee for the work of God the Holy Spirit, no preacher can anticipate ever what God is saying to people. Uh, we know that those in front of us tonight, those that are tuned in over the internet, those that may come across the service and dares to come as they might be surfing through the web and come across it, uh, we know, Lord, that no matter how carefully crafted our words may be, that we have no way of knowing just what word, what line, what sentence God the Holy Spirit is going to take up and fasten onto the heart of the mind of an individual and bring them savingly to Christ. Our Lord, we remember when He was talking to Nicodemus, He talked about the wind. The wind blows where it lists, 
and you hear the sound thereof, but cannot tell from whence it comes or whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And so we pray that I will come as that rushing mighty wind over hearts and over minds, and that I will bring the word of the gospel and give it a cutting edge, and give it, Lord, traction, we pray, and give it uh, an entrance into the heart and mind without hindrance tonight, that it will be profitable and fruitful to good to the heart, good to the soul, and bring glory unto the Lord God of our salvation. Come and answer prayer. We lay ourselves before thee, and we pray that I will back home the word by thy power and presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the topic tonight is spreading or sounding out. The good news as we have read about it in 1 Thessalonians 1 and the verse 8. Fact of the matter is, if you were to take a stroll through the streets of Thessalonica in the days of the early church, then you would have been walking through a region that was a busy and a free and an affluent city or a large metropolis. The citizens there in that town would have been very influential. The economy was stable, if not booming, and the location, it was very well situated along a known freeway. The Via Ignatia. Think of some main route in America or in England, one of our motorways, the M6, for example, and you've got this kind of picture here. And so those in Thessalonica, they would have been the envy of many round about them. Goods from the east and goods from the west would have poured into this particular city. And it was to this place in the first century AD that Paul the Apostle ventured. At its peak, the population in the place would have been 200,000, and because it was such a bustling center, there was consideration given to it that it should be the capital of the world at that time rather than what became the capital, and that was Constantinople. So a very influential place it was. And you will know from the reading of Scripture, that was exactly the kind of area that the Apostle Paul would have been targeting. He would have taken the big centers of population where he knew, I will have a congregation, I will have an audience, I can arise and debate in their debating chambers, be it outdoors as well as meet in the synagogues indoors, wherever I can go to preach the gospel of grace, that is where I am going to go. No surprise that he made his way to Thessalonica. And before he had left, he had founded in a very short space of time the first Christian church in that city. And that church, really, in our language, it took off. And it took off because of this. They were a dynamic group. And with great determination, and with zeal, and with confidence, these people in the church in Thessalonica, this new church, they went out and they proclaimed the good news of the grace of God like thunder rolling through a canyon. These first century Christians became models of authentic Christianity. And what they did was, they made Christianity, what it isn't in many places today, they made it contagious to those around them in that day and generation. People took note of them, 
realized they had something about them. As they had taken note of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, and they said then, these men are different. Something has happened to them. They stand apart from the crowd, and they took note of them, we're told, that they had been with Jesus. And that was the same with the believers in Thessalonica. So Paul writes this letter to them, addresses it to the church in this city, during the course of his second great missionary journey, and that was the second of three large journeys that he undertook. He had left Thessalonica after a short stop. He had been in Athens, and then he'd moved on into the city of Corinth. And we read all about those stops in Acts 17, and also in Acts chapter 18 as well. And no doubt, as he's on the move, preaching in new centers. There was news coming his way, following him about what was happening back in that church in Thessalonica, that church that you founded, Paul. It's burgeoning in size. It's sending out the Word. It's preaching and proclaiming all through the region. It's a real credit to what the grace of God has done in that area. And so from Corinth, Paul takes a little time out and he pens this letter in AD 50 or thereabouts to the church that had been founded in Thessalonica. Well, how does he write to them? Well, you'll find in the opening words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that he gives them a greeting. In verse 2, he is thanking. In verse 3 to 5, he's remembering. And there were things that really stood out about them that had caused an impression upon Paul's mind. As he's writing here to the believers now in this new church in Thessalonica, and he's writing from Corinth, he's remembering certain factors about them that were very notable when he was among them for that short time. The first thing that he notes here is their work of faith. Then he goes on to say, you had a labor of love that was virtually second to none. And also I noted about you a real patience of hope. So all of these factors, their good works that flowed from their Christian faith, their enthusiastic activity that was prompted by love that we talked about this morning in another context, their ability to persevere under the pressures of life. Because you can be absolutely sure whenever you see souls that give their lives to Jesus Christ, what will happen? There will be attacks of the devil against that fledgling church. And they had those attacks, but they displayed patience of hope, even though those pressures were upon them. That prompts the apostle to write more things about them here, and as he reflects on them, two other particulars he mentions, their practice in verse 6 through to the verse 8. They personally modeled the gospel before other people. And really, that should be the prayer of anybody's heart who claims to be a child of God. Help me as I go out into my community, into my neighborhood, among my friends and family. Help me to model the gospel before others. Don't let me be a stumbling block. Don't let me be a barrier. Don't let me be a hindrance for, from them in coming to Christ. Let me be a model of the gospel before them. And Paul notes about them, and ye became 
followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Big examples they were. Great modelers of the gospel they were. But not only had they practice here, but their proclamation as well. What they said. That's bringing us to verse 8, our text for tonight. For from you, Paul says, sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. What had happened? The stone had hit the pond. And the ripples were going increasingly out in those concentric circles. And the message was traveling way beyond Thessalonica. And there were people now in other towns and other villages. And they were thanking God. Why? Because this group of believers in Thessalonica had taken the time to get the word out into every place they possibly could. Now, if you were ascertaining their value, you would say, these men and these women were made of the right stuff. They were so good at their job here that Paul says, I hardly need to say anything to the people that I'm meeting because these Thessalonians have already told them it all. They've given them the message, the message of redeeming love in Jesus Christ. And let's put a challenge to our hearts tonight. How quickly the gospel would spread if each Christian would simply do what the Thessalonians did so many hundreds of years ago. Let's put another question to us. How far is our testimony traveling? Let's put another one. How authentic and real is our testimony? And those are vital questions in the light of what happened in this church in Thessalonica. So the first major point tonight is the emanation or the spreading out of the gospel. The emanation of the gospel. First Thessalonians chapter 1, the verse 8, what does it say? For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Sounded out the word of the Lord. Now, the word that Paul is using there in terms of sounding out, we get one of our English words directly from the Greek here, and it's the word in English, echo. Because the meaning here is, you're sounding it out like a trumpet. You're thundering or reverberating as an echo. And what's more, Paul is using a tense here, the perfect tense, and that's pointing to the fact this sound was not a one-off, wasn't just rooted in the historic past, a done action performed then, not to be repeated. No, the sound is still continuing, still going out, even as Paul was writing this letter to them. And his heart is rejoicing that this is the case. So we're looking here at the sound, the source of this sound, from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Many times you're having to trace stuff back to its source. Where did it begin? Where was the radiation point? 
Where was the focal point in all of this? And if you were tracing back the waves of this particular sound, you'll be tracing it right back into the pews, if they had them, of the local church in Thessalonica. Now, as far as history goes about the church, it wasn't large. It certainly wasn't long established. Paul had only spent three weeks in this city. But such had been the blessing of God upon the preaching of the Word that men and women had not only been gloriously saved, but a real work of God's grace had been compressed into that three-week period that resulted in these new converts thinking, do you know what? We can't keep the news of the gospel to ourselves. We need to get out there. We need to get among the people. We need to spread the word as widely as we can. And so they got out and they witnessed to all and sundry. Now what a challenge that is to us. Can we claim that local churches in our country here in Northern Ireland are spoken of throughout the known world? To what extent are we sounding out the word of the Lord? Where is our avenue of service expanding to? How far is our witness reaching? That is our challenge, the source of the sign from you sounded out, the word of the Lord. But then let's think about the secret of this sign. Why was it so effective? Why did it bring the results that it did? When Paul says, from you sounded out the word of the Lord, verse 8. Well, we're back to verse 3. And in verse 3, what do we read? He's remembering without ceasing that expression, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus, in the sight of God and our Father. And if I am looking, and I am, for the secret of this sound, if I want to find out why did it spread in the way that it did, I get the answer in First Thessalonians chapter 1 and the verse 3. For here was a people with a creative faith, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. They had confidence in God and His Word. They had commitment to Christ. They had total reliance on God the Holy Spirit that things would happen in the local church, and they did, and that those things would happen beyond the doors of the local church, and they did. They had faith to remove mountains of difficulties. They had faith to venture out in a courageous witness. They had faith to believe God that he would do what he said he would, that if Christ Jesus was lifted up, he would draw all men and women unto himself. And so this people go out with this creative faith in the promises of God, and that sees them get results. The hymn writer said, give me the faith which can remove and sink the mountain to a plain. Give me the childlike praying love that longs to build thy house again. Thy love, let it my heart o'erpower and all my yearning soul devour. Now that's a good prayer, a good petition to shoot up from our soul to the throne of God. They had a creative faith. More than that, they had a redemptive love. Paul says, remembering without ceasing, verse 3, your work of faith and 
labor, labor of love. Now, undergirding the term labor there is this thought. Their labor came at a cost. Their labor demanded exertion. They were strenuous in the work of God. And only redemptive love, a passion for souls, will be persuaded of the need to sweat and travail and sacrifice. This is a love that you can only explain in the light of Calvary. Here's a love that will pay anything. Here's a love that will give anything. Here's a love that will do anything for the sounding out of the gospel. And it's a kind of love that it doesn't count pennies and it doesn't count pounds, but it rather counts everything but a small price for making known the message of the gospel of Christ. Remember how another hymn writer put it, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The call of God came to a man by the name of Henry Martin after he'd completed a brilliant course as a student. That call came to his heart, go and serve God and do it in a foreign mission field. Now, a lot of attractive and lucrative opportunities had come Henry Martin's way, and Martin said, here I am, Lord. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be in thy service and for thy kingdom and its expansion. When Henry Martin fell deeply in love with a girl named Lydia, he told her of the call of God in his life and how he felt led to live and to minister in the land of India. And he asked her anxiously, would that be agreeable to her? And he pleaded with God that it would be, but it wasn't. If he would stay in England, then yes, he could have her as his bride. If he was going to India, then he would be going without her. And so the question was a drumbeat in his brain, just incessant, India or Lydia? Lydia or India? Henry Martin was a mastered man. And he was mastered by love and mastered by love's master. He was constrained by the love of Christ. And so he said, My dear Lydia and my duty call me different ways. Yet God has not forsaken me. I am born for God only. And Christ is nearer to me than anyone else. And Henry Martin enlisted for service on the foreign mission field in India, where he burned out for Jesus Christ. Still another secret of the church in Thessalonica, not only had it created a faith and a redemptive love, but it had an aggressive hope. And I use the term aggression advisedly here, even though you're reading, and it doesn't seem to be aggressive at all in verse 3, does it? Remembering, Paul says, you're patience of hope. Well, what are we talking about aggression here? 
The word patience in this context, you can check it out in Hebrews 12, the verse 1 and 2 as well. The word patience, it means endurance. It doesn't mean that Paul here was saying, oh, we're going to sit back and we're going to grin and bear it whenever trying circumstances come our way. The very opposite, in fact. We are going to go out with an aggressive constancy. We're going to go out with a dogged determination in the face of every piece of opposition because we want to break through every barrier to get the message of the gospel of Christ out. And so this aggressive hope is one that will always be seen laboring, working relentlessly. And why will it do that? It'll do it in the light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will know my days on earth are short. That's true for all of us. My time, in my mind, is indeterminate because I don't know when the day will end. God does. And I've only a window in which to work for Christ. And so there's that bold determination, this aggressive hope that God, if I step out in His promise, will work. In the earlier years of His Christian ministry, Dr. P.W. Philpott, believed the church could save the whole world. They could take the world for Christ. But then his courage and his confidence began to wane. And he saw that it wasn't just happening as he thought it could. And he was reading in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13, and it didn't really fill him with hope when he read that evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then a change came with Dr. Philpott, and he heard a message, another preacher preaching on the second coming of Christ. And he said, that message gripped my soul and set it on fire for the lost ones. From the study of God's Word, I saw that the mission of the church is not so much to take the world for Christ, but to take Christ to the world. Rarely in my teaching and preaching did I feel to emphasize the verse, and now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And so he preached the message, take Christ to the world. He taught his congregation the need to get out there in outreach among the people. His church grew from 50 to more than 2,000. Out of that number, we have 16 young people who were converted, and not only converted, but they were sent out as foreign missionaries to that foreign and far-flung field of service. Souls were saved in increasing numbers, and Christians went on better with God. In 1 John 3 and 3, we're told, And every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. What's that hope? The hope that Christ is coming again. That spurs me and you on to tell others. Tell me, how are we living? Are we living as if Christ is coming again? Have we even a passing thought about his return? Are we doing all we can in the time we have, knowing He is on the way? Or are we living as if I'm going to live here for a very long time, and while I do that, I can pretty much live to myself in the way that I want? 
Reverend A.W. Bailey once said, many are looking for signs of Christ's coming when they should be looking for souls. And let me tell you, whenever, and this was more the case in former days when churches would have been filling up, whenever you put a billboard out and saying, series of meetings on the second coming of Jesus Christ, you could be guaranteed you'd have a big crowd. Do you know what would have happened as well? One church in the locality, if it had the sign, another church, another church, another church, could have all been preaching on the second coming of Christ, and you could have heard all different interpretations of that subject, time sequencing, and all the rest of it, enough to make you totally confused. But while that would have attracted crowds, soul-winning conference, not so much. How to reach your neighbor, not so much interest. How to plead for the souls, the perishing souls of men and women around you, not so much attention there. Many are looking for signs of Christ coming when they should be looking for souls. And the same preacher Bailey said, the disciples were gazing when they should have been going. That can't be said of those believers in the church in Thessalonica, and may it never be said of us. The secret of this sign, the source of this sign, the emanation of the gospel, but then the explanation of the gospel. Important, we look at that. From you sounded out the word of the Lord. In verse 5, Paul takes pains to explain what it means by the word of the Lord. Our gospel, he says, came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Now, that's the only reason the gospel was effective in reaching the hearts of men, that it came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. What do you have there? You've got a gospel that is dynamic power that is dynamic. Our gospel came not on, only unto you in word only, but also in power. Words are good. Words are descriptive. We must explain what the gospel is. We need words to do that. But the gospel is not mere words. It is a power. Wherever, whenever the gospel is preached, God is present and working. One has said the gospel is not the presentation of an idea, but the operation of a power. When the gospel is preached, the power of God is at work for the salvation of men, snatching them from the power of destruction and transferring them into the new life. That's why Paul, in another place, actually in Romans, the chapter 1, the verse 16, he said, here's where I stand. Here's where I'm finding my ministry. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And the word that he used there is dunamis in Greek, from which we get our term dynamite, the power of God. We have dynamite at our disposal. So we have a power here that is dynamic. Not only that, there's a power in the gospel, and it is delivering. 
Our gospel, he says, verse 5 again, came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. Try as I might. And if I thought I could do it, I'd be doing it all the time. Every moment God would give me breath and energy. But I cannot, I cannot illuminate a darkened mind, and I cannot quicken an enslaved will so that God's saving grace can be experienced. I can point you to Christ. I can tell you how to get there, but I can't open your heart. I can't turn your will. I can't give you repentance. I can't give you faith. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And that's why we're reading the gospel, came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. An aged man said that it took 40 years for him to understand three simple things. And we all, no matter how long it takes, need to come this way. The three simple things he said that he couldn't do anything to save himself. That God didn't expect him to do anything to save himself. That Jesus Christ had done it all. Those were the three things. That he couldn't do anything to save himself. That God didn't expect him to do anything to save himself. But that Jesus Christ had done it all. And so, what he's saying is, here's how a soul comes to faith in Christ. Forsaking all else, I trust Him. I don't depend on anything I'm doing or have done, but I depend entirely upon what Jesus Christ has done for me, and so I plead to Him, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all I can bring, my sin. What I need is Thy salvation. I can't produce that. Only Christ can give that to me a power that is delivering. It's also a power that is decisive. Our gospel, verse 5 again, came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. Sometimes we sing, and I'm sure we're all familiar with the hymn, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And it's wonderful to have that assured tone coming through the message. Paul and Silas and Timotheus and Timothy, they didn't breeze into Thessalonica with a lot of ifs and buts and maybes or I suggest or we think or we're trusting that it's so or we're hoping this how it is. They spoke with such assurance because it wasn't their word. It was God's word, and they knew they could speak boldly on that. I love the hymn that's based on Paul's words that he has written in 2 Timothy 1 and 12. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him, but I know, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep all that I've committed unto him against that day. You'll read of the converts here in verse 6 that they became followers 
of the apostles and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And the word followers is pretty fascinating. It means a mimic or an actor in our English words. They became mimics of the missionaries. Then of the Lord. Now that's a logical historical order. The converts would listen to the preachers. Mark their manner of life. Know that they're doing it right. Want to copy them, but ultimately realize, do you know what? We're walking in their footsteps, but they're only as good as how well they follow the Master's footsteps. He's the ultimate example, and He's the one we should be imitating in our life. So this dynamic preaching, delivering preaching, this decisive word, And that was a characteristic of Paul and of all those preachers alongside of him. That became the characteristic of those Thessalonians that they'd gone to and preached the word to. They went out with confidence in the same power. The final thought that we have tonight, the emanation of the gospel, how it spread, the explanation of the gospel, what it was, how it worked, the expectation of the gospel from you sounded out the word of the Lord, verse 8. And such was the expectation of the witness of the church that Paul could go on to say, see in verse, verse 8, in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. The word had gone out from them. The impact was clear to be seen. What they expected happened. What did they expect? Look at verse 8 to 9 and 10 here. Look at 9 and 10 in a moment. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. What's happening here? There's first of all a repudiation of the old life. Ye turn to God from idols. Converted soldier was asked, How were you saved? And he put it in the language of a soldier in terms of giving a response. He said, How was I saved? Well, basically, the Lord said to me, Halt, attention, right about face, march. That's all there was to it. He did that complete turnaround by the grace and the power of God. And when Paul preached this transforming gospel of Jesus Christ in Thessalonica, there was the repudiation of the old life. Those things that had been so central to them, so central to the worship of the hearts of these pagan people, they just repudiated them. There was a change, dramatic change. There was a genuine conversion. There are things that you need to have changed in your life that need to go. God's grace will see that they do go. His Spirit will make sure there's no room for them. But there will be a repudiation of the old life. There was also a taking on board an appropriation of the new life because in verse 9, they just don't turn to God from idols, leaving the idols, that's it. They turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
And so they're saying we're yielded to a different master. We're following a different Lord. We're under different instructions here. And these instructions are blessed to our hearts. A repudiation of the old life. An appropriation of the new life. And also the anticipation of the full life. Verse 9 and 10, again, ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Why would you serve a dead and a false one? Now, that's what they are doing. They had been trying to serve a dead and a false God and been frustrated and unfulfilled all along the way, as everyone will be. But now, there's anticipation. There's something to look forward to. For those who were unsaved, there's a fearful looking forward. What if this is the day of my death? What if I only have a short time to live? What if I do go out as the Bible is telling me I will to meet God? What if I do appear before His judgment seat as the Bible assures everybody will? And I can't wriggle out of that point. What if all of this is true? And of course, it is true. There's a fearful looking forward at these things. You can't look at those with any relish and think, can't we? It's the last thing you want. But here's anticipation. And to wait from his, for his son from heaven. The supreme expectation of a truly saved soul. Jesus is coming again. We're happy about that. We're overjoyed by that. Blessed hope. Let's sound it out like a trumpet note. And here's the life to which a Christian is introduced. The expectation of the gospel sound for me to die will be gain. No fear in the future. Is it not time as a church that we at least kept walking and redoubled our steps? as well to walk in the footsteps of the church in Thessalonica, communicated the Bible to all and sundry around, got the message out to men and women, got it beyond our boundaries and our borders as well, telling them you need to repudiate the old life, appropriate the new life, anticipate the full life, and you'll have it in Christ. And you'll never be the loser for it, but rather earthly and eternal gain will come your way.